Will you pray with me, please? Lord, speak to us because your servants are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What does God want us to do in this ever increasingly wicked world? Or to put it another way, why are you here on earth and not in heaven? In other words, you're redeemed. You would think that trusting in the Lord and receiving eternal life, you would be able to get on with it in heaven. But instead, we're here. And we're here in a world that is terribly immoral, very corrupt, and increasingly barbaric. There obviously is something that God wants us to do or wants us to be. And while we might live in a pocket of peace and serenity in our neighborhoods, as we watch the increase of trouble in the world, I think it becomes more and more clear to us that the words of Christ are true, that before the end things will get worse and worse. We can today take a lesson from Noah, because the world in which he lived was even worse than this if that's imaginable. To give you a little background, though, we're going to be talking about the flood. We cannot possibly deal with these full three chapters in a half an hour. It's more like a weekend retreat. But since you probably have other plans for this afternoon, I think we'll hit some of the main points and lessons that are here. How bad was the world before the flood? I don't think we give enough attention to that. It would have to be terrible for the Lord to wipe out the human race. He doesn't do that on a drop of a hat. You remember in Genesis 15, God announced to Abram that his descendants were going to go into Egypt for 400 years and live in bondage to the Egyptians. But God told Abram the reason. And the reason was that the Canaanites calls them Amorites there, but the Canaanites were not bad enough yet to judge. He'll give them 400 more years. Let them fester, and then it'll be time for him to judge them. And also, giving 400 years, there might be some who might actually come to faith. God in the Bible is slow to judge. And he is also revealed as one who seeks to be merciful and compassionate. And yet, he is also a righteous God. And this passage in the flood story will tell us just how far God will go to preserve righteousness in his creation. So we have to ask the question, what exactly was the problem in this account? We got the clues, and you studied them previously, so I will not take a great deal of time with them. But the statement at the beginning of chapter uh, 6 is very telling. I don't think we have a stronger statement about sin in the entire Bible. Every imagination of the thoughts of them were only evil continually. That's quite a mouthful. I mean, we look at the human race and we say, well, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things and they've got good ideas and they're friendly and nice and moral. This is saying before the flood... There wasn't a one. 
and everything they thought, everything they planned, everything they imagined was evil all the time. That shows a tremendous degeneration from the creation. And while human nature is perfectly capable of doing that, in Genesis they had some help. Because back in chapter 6 at the beginning, we are told that there were some creatures here called the sons of God. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the sons of God are always angels. And yet what they did was they overstepped their boundaries and invaded the human race. We don't have to go far to learn that because Jude, verse 6, will tell us this, that these fallen angels who did not retain their own habitation were thrown into chains in darkness to await for the judgment. God set boundaries, and there's a spirit world, and there's a physical world, and the angelic host that fell with Satan decided to enter into the human race, inhabited people, involved the world in demonic activity, and the result was there were giants in the land. And I think that refers to, of all species, oversized, overpowered creatures. And they thought that was their greatness and that was their way to immortality. That became the background of a lot of the ancient myths that people read about, how they believed that a human could intermarry with a god and produce a demigod. This is in Greece, it's in Rome, it's in Babylon, it's everywhere. And yet the Bible tells us that the Lord said, they're just flesh. They're not gods, they're not immortal, they're not superhuman, they're flesh. And in 120 years, I will bring a flood on them. They will be destroyed. It was a time that these evil spirits had so dominated the world And they were a particularly bad group of evil spirits because Peter tells us that on his way to heaven at the ascension, Jesus went and preached to them. The spirits who had been imprisoned since the days of Noah, they're never getting out (laughs) except to be cast into the lake of fire. So we see at the end of that pre-flood era, tremendous demonic activity over overwhelming supernatural power towards evil and a corrupt human race that was going headlong into it. The apostles tell us it's going to be just the same at the end of the age and that we have to be alert to the fact that not only evil and wickedness and warfare and cruelty will continue, but so will be the control by demonic powers. So when you look at the reason for the flood. It's not that God was simply angry over a few sins or he didn't like the fact that they weren't living the way they were supposed to be. It was was time for him to start over, to wipe the slate clean. We have other passages in the ancient world uh, that record their traditions about the flood. Uh, If you've studied or read anything about the flood in Genesis, you realize other nations have the account. It's well documented in all different traditions, but the most famous one is the account of the flood in Babylon, Babylonian story of the flood. Although, even though it does have a, a person who builds an ark and takes the animals and weathers the storm and sends out the birds and 
It sounds like the same structure. It's the same basic tradition. But it has become thoroughly corrupted with polytheism. And as a result, becomes rather bizarre. The reason for the flood, you might like to know this, from Babylon is not sin. That's one thing that first leaves when you get into polytheism and demonic activity because nothing's evil. But it is, according to the Bible. But the reason for the flood, according to the Babylonian story, is that the humans on earth were making too much noise and the gods couldn't sleep. Well... I've got to say, there have been times I can appreciate that instinct when you have all the noise that we have to live with in the world, but that's hardly a reason for even imagining that they're near the truth because the gods in Babylon are too human. They're not, they're not like the Lord. They, they're trying to sleep. and So they have to, have to figure out a way to stop the noise, and that is to wipe out the race, but they're going to save one because they've got to make him a servant. In their religion, the humans have to do all the work and the gods just sit back in their uh, lounges and wait and enjoy it. But they have to trick their Noah. He's not called Noah, but they have to trick him into the ark. He doesn't want to go, but he goes in. And then uh, the ark in the Babylonian account is a nine-mile cube. I don't know how in the world their Noah could have built that or how it could have floated, uh, but... That didn't seem to bother them because it didn't rain rain, it rained corn husks. See, mythology makes no sense. And mythology has nothing that's logical to it. But there are some traditions there. And after the flood is over, this Babylonian Noah comes out and he decides to make a, an altar to his god. And all these flies come down and start swarming around his head. So it's named the Lord of the Flies. This is bizarre. I mean, this is not... There's not a world of, word of truth in it or, except where they remember there was a flood. In fact, one writer said, reading the religions of the ancient Near East and their traditions and their myths and then coming to the Bible, it's like leaving a darkened, smoke-filled room and walking out into the bright sunshine of new day. There's a world of difference. The flood lets us know that God is slow to judge, but he will because righteousness demands it. But why a flood? Couldn't he have done it some other way? Well, there are several reasons for the flood, I think, that are very important. Number one, it's going to purge like nothing else. Floods of this ferocity and of this upheaval would rinse, wash, purge, whirl things around, and it would make the world clean. And it was one thing that uh, he wanted to demonstrate, that he could clean everything up very quickly. But there's another reason, I think, more important than that for the flood, is that this is a new creation. He's going to start over. So what he does is he goes back to the way it was in Genesis 1. The whole world was covered with water. And he's going to go back and do that again. And then when the water is covering the whole earth, then the Lord gives the commands in Genesis 1 that the water recedes and is collected into reservoirs, which are the seas and the oceans. The dry land emerges, and he puts Adam into the middle of that to be the Lord of the earth, gives him the commandments to replenish and fill the earth. He's going to do that again with Noah. 
going to put Noah in the ark. He's going to start over with the whole world underwater. And then when it recedes and dries up, Noah will come out. God will give to Noah the same instructions he gave to Adam. And this will be a new beginning, a second Adam, a new creation. He's going to do it again at the end of our age, but it won't be with water because he swore he would not use water again. Next time it will be with fire, and that will be the judgment that will come with the coming of the Lord. It's interesting that in these ancient periods, while they didn't have all the details you and I do, they know about this. Enoch was a preacher, seventh from Adam, and he proclaimed that the Lord was coming with judgment with all of his angels. That's way early, and Noah as well. But we're also told with the flood that we've got here a perfect preview of the righteousness of God and that if sin gets so out of hand as it did here, he will start over with the, re- with the redeemed, with the righteous. Now you and I know that if we have come to faith in the Lord and we have been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we have a share in that world to come. No one else will be able to enter that world to come any more than people in the ocean could have climbed onto the ark when the storm was raging. There's only one way, and it's by the grace of God. And that's what we learn about Noah as well as we see in ourselves. So we have, according to the Bible, a catastrophe, a huge judgment on the world as a part of cleansing the world from evil and starting over. Not the final judgment, it's a picture of the final judgment. As Jesus himself said, what's it going to be like at the end of the age? It will be as in the days of Noah, that some will be taken, some will be left. And the ones taken away in judgment will be the wicked of the world, and the righteous like Noah will enter into the world to come, a new creation, the kingdom of our Lord. Now, what do we learn then from Noah? He's going to ride out this storm and he's going to leave the world that God was destroying and he's going to begin again with a new. Certainly, we've got some things here that we can learn that will be instructive for us because we're told by the apostle all of these things are written for our instruction. And I think the first thing we have to notice about Noah is his character. Uh, His character. And that's recorded for us in... Genesis chapter 6. I want to read the verses to you briefly, and then I want to make an obvious statement and then a not so obvious statement. In Genesis 6 and verse 9, we read, These are the generations of Noah. This is the account of Noah, it's his life. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Three little short statements, not involved. One of the problems I've discovered in listening to people talk about the flood and Noah and Genesis is that they forget that verse 8 precedes verse 9. Now, that's a simple observation, you would say. Of course, anybody can see that. But we don't actually teach it correctly. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Once he then had received the grace of God... Then he became a righteous man. A lot of people will say, well, you know, God was going to destroy the world. He looked around and here's Noah and he's a really righteous person. He's blameless. So God gives him grace. 
That destroys the whole meaning of grace. Grace means that you are given God's benefits, but you don't deserve them. In fact, when Noah was there before he heard from the Lord, before he trusted in the Lord, he was just as sinful as the people of his generation. Once he is given the grace of God, once God touches his heart and he, and he is blessed and he receives grace, now he begins to live it. And this is the new section. That's why it begins with verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. That's always a heading in the book of Genesis. A new story, a new chapter is going to start. Noah, the recipient of grace, how is he living? He's now standing out from his world. That's the way the Bible teaches it's supposed to work. You come to faith in the Lord because of the grace of God. Now you're going to live righteously, not to earn the salvation that you've been given, but as a result of the grace that is at work in your heart. And the call all the way through the New Testament is for us to live righteously and wisely in a wicked world, demonstrating God's grace and God's salvation. But Noah's righteous, and Noah is blameless. He's, he's a man who's walking with God. He's living his faith. He stands out from all the rest of the world. That character, we're going to be clarified in the New Testament, has something else to it. Not just his nature, not just his righteousness, but what he is doing. In Second Peter chapter 2, Peter will tell us that Noah was also a preacher of righteousness one who has been declared righteous by God through grace and faith is then going to be a herald of righteousness. You and I come to faith and we are declared to be righteous. We are justified. It doesn't make us righteous. It declares us righteous. So in the mind and the words of God, you and I are declared righteous. That's because of the grace of God, that's by faith. Now, having been declared righteous, we are told to live out the righteousness of God, and that is not now imputed righteousness, the one that he declares we are, that is practical righteousness, the way we live. Righteousness is a kind of hard word to figure out because it it can be used for so many things, but There's a wonderful little illustration of it in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 25, I won't take the time to turn there, but there's a whole series of laws about business dealings. And one of the laws says in the chapter, you cannot have in your bag diverse weights. Now, you've got to get into the culture a little bit here. You're going shopping, and you've got your shopping bag. Now, you don't have all the digital junk we got today. you got scales. And you're going to have in your purse, you're going to have a bunch of chips of silver. So you go down to the market and you want to buy something, and uh, you'll have in your bag weights because you're going to have to measure out how much silver you're going to pay. So that weight would be like a cylindrical cone and say it's one shekel. So it will be labeled one shekel, probably about 12 grams. So what you do, you go shopping, and you've got two of these in your bag. You're shrewd. Not righteous, you're shrewd. (laughs) You've got one that is going to be nine grams. And you've got one that's going to be 14 grams, but they're both going to be labeled one shekel. And so when you get to pay for something, you will pull out your lightweight, 
put it on the scale, and you'll just have to put out that less amount of silver. Uh, unless, of course, the vendor beats you to it and puts his heavy weight on the scale, then you're going to pay more silver. But the law in Deuteronomy 25 says you can't do that. You have to have a righteous weight. It has to conform to the standard. And that's what righteousness is. You have to conform to the standard. And in the life of obedience to God, God is the standard. How righteous do you have to be to get to heaven? As righteous as Jesus Christ. You say, well, who in the world could do that? Well, none of us. That's why he gives us the righteousness, declares us to be righteous by his grace. No one can earn it. And when we look at ourselves in the measure, we might be three gram or one gram or whatever. We don't measure up. But our life now that we've received grace and we've got the Holy Spirit and we've got the word is to constantly try to bring our life into conformity with the will of God or to live righteously in the world. We have a standard that is above the world. We're not simply to live by the world's standards. Ours is higher. It's God himself. And that lifestyle of righteousness will be evidence that we are recipients of grace. So what Noah, what Noah is, is a sample to us. Not only has he been declared righteous, he is living it. And not only is he living it, according to Peter, he's preaching it. He's telling people, warning them. There's a higher standard than just what is going on in your community. There's a higher standard than just the laws of the land. That higher standard is the Lord. And that's the one you have to answer to. That's the one you have to please. And so he's going to live it. He's going to proclaim it, just like Enoch did and countless believers have done ever since. So one of the reasons we are left here in this world is very clear to proclaim the righteousness of God and to remind people that you can't measure up to it on your own strength. You have to receive the Lord. You have to come to faith. He declares you righteous. He gives you his Holy Spirit, gives you his word, and you can now be a light to the world. So that was one thing about Noah, I think, that's instructive. A second thing that we read about Noah in this whole story, and if you you know the story pretty well. But we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith, uh, Noah built the ark and obeyed the Lord. Now you've got to think about this for Noah. I, I think sometimes we get sidetracked from the details of the account. And nowadays with movies, you get sidetracked by a lot of that stuff. But if you're thinking about what's going on here with Noah... God calls him and tells him that he's going to judge the world. And so he calls him to build an ark. <laughs> and he obeys. Doesn't know what an ark is. Doesn't know what's coming. Doesn't fully understand why. We're told that he's going to be working on this thing probably for about 100 years. That takes a lot of patient faith because when he is going to receive this call, we're given the dates. He's such and such an age, and then when he goes into the ark, he's such and such an age. And not only that, his own children are going to have to share this faith as well. They're not little kids, because when they go into the ark, they're over 100 years old. So we're dealing with people who are living in the world, 
And you can just imagine the curiosity, the criticism, the joking, and all of that. But I noticed uh, just reading it again this morning, after he assembles the animals and they get into the ark, he's sitting there for a week or two, <laughs> waiting for what, what's happening. You know, when's it going to happen? Nothing. He's waiting. It's patience that he knew what God said he was going to do. He didn't know God's timetable. That's where you and I are. We've been told what God is going to do. We've been told to prepare for it. We've been told that it's imminent, could happen any time. But he didn't tell us this Tuesday or a week from now. People have always tried to guess the days of the second coming. He can't guess it. Jesus said only the Father knows that time. But it's coming. And Noah, he knew it was coming. God said so. And then the flood broke up. Now, a lot of people will argue it probably wasn't a universal flood over all the world. It was just local. Well, none of that would make much sense, actually. The text says it covers the whole world, so we have to deal with the text first. But then secondly, if he has 100 years, why couldn't he just take the animals and leave town? And why would he have to go through all this building the ark and waiting around there? And No, there's nowhere it can go. And when the flood does come, it's not just with rain. If you read the chapters very carefully, we're told that first God breaks up the fountains of the deep subterranean water and what that tells us is that whatever the natural conditions were with the flood the earth's crust was in tremendous upheaval because you don't flood the whole world with rain that lasts only 40 days there has to be more of it and it has to be a shifting where the high tides and floods and whatever else is going to cause it. And in fact, even in the crust of the earth being shifted, it might have then made the high ridges of mountains. We don't know all the details. We're just told that this flood came and the Lord destroyed all flesh. Those in the ark, the eight people, the animals, Noah took two of every animal. He took seven pairs of all the clean animals. And uh, he's going to make use of that in the process, but he will endure this and be in the ark for about a year. That might be not such a pleasant boat ride as you would expect. I mean, it's funny. I think about that this summer, just flying over the Atlantic, how impatient we get with that trip and how cluttered the cabin becomes or whatever. Can you imagine with all these animals and, and out in the ocean for a, for a year? before he actually leaves. Somebody said it's not a bad picture of salvation and judgment. If it weren't for the chaos on the outside, you couldn't smell, stand the smell on the inside. So the alternative is judgment. But Noah and his family are fine, and uh, they will survive this, and they will come out at the end. It's, his, it's Noah's faith that is simply going to take God at his word and act upon it. It's what God told him to do. He didn't have to understand it. He didn't have to know when it was all going to work out. He couldn't have even probably imagined all the things that lay ahead. But God said it. Faith obeys. It's the test of faith. When the Lord gives the straightforward commands, people who truly believe his word they will step out in faith and obey it. Now, we have not been told to build an ark. 
or anything of that nature, but we have been given some instructions that we are to live by faith and be obedient to his word, looking for the coming of the Lord. In fact, John will tell us in his epistle that whoever has the hope of the second coming purifies himself, being ready, being watching, being waiting for the coming of the Lord. It's one thing to moan and complain and be troubled about evil in the world. But that's always been there. But the people of faith are living above the world because they have a hope of something glorious that is to come. So not only will they be witnesses in the world to share their faith, they're going to have to live it by obedience to demonstrate this is what the grace of God can do. And the third part of this section is afterwards when the ark lands and they come out from the ark. In chapter 8, we've got the little conclusion with verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered the burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. He is establishing a new order. He has removed the terrible evil influence of these imprisoned spirits. He's starting over again with Noah. And Noah's immediate response coming out of the ark is to make an altar. Uh, Put up an altar of stones, kill several of the the clean animals, put them on the altar as a sacrifice to God. Why do people sacrifice in the Old Testament? You might look at that and say it's kind of gruesome and not to them because they deal with animals all the time and they're used to animals dying and being killed. We, we're not, we kind of go to the grocery store. But in their world, this was their life and yet there was something very serious being taught here. Couldn't you say, for example, just strangle the animal? Why do you have to kill it and shed blood? Well, the Bible has some very important principles to be made for sacrifice. One is, in the creation account, God makes the human beings of the body, and he breathes into the body the breath of life. So you have a spiritual nature, you have a physical nature. What, according to the Bible, holds them together? the blood you drain the blood from the body the spirit will leave quickly that's what he's saying Leviticus says the life of the flesh is in the blood and if there is sin the punishment for sin is death a life has to be relinquished there is always a punishment for sin but God in his grace allowed the ancient Israelites, the ancient people like Noah, to provide a substitute, an animal, that would be representing them. And when they sacrificed the animal, they knew that that should have been their blood that was spread. It should have been their carcass that fell to the ground. But God has allowed a substitute. They didn't know why. They didn't understand this. 
God did. He knew where he knew where he was going with the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. It would come to be in Christ eventually. But this is the age-old dilemma. There is sin. The punishment for sin is death. But there is salvation. So how can the Lord be just and justify the sinner? By providing a substitute that will take the sins of the person. And he did it with animals to let them lead up to the coming of the Messiah. For Christ himself would be that substitutionary sacrifice. Now you and I, when we worship we don't worship like Noah, come in here with an animal and burn up the place with a sacrifice on an altar. That's no longer in. But we have frequently Holy Communion. And when you have Holy Communion, what you are doing is you are remembering the sacrifice of Christ. And you are participating in it. Just as the Israelite ate from the sacrifice they offered, you and I eat from the elements that represent the death of Christ. And all of that is looking back to what Christ did, but all of it is also looking forward to the second coming. Because Jesus said he would not drink this cup again until he drank it with us in his Father's kingdom. So we're looking at his death, which brings us salvation. We're anticipating his coming, where we'll have complete fellowship with the Lord in glory in a new age, in a new world, in a new creation. There's no other way of salvation. There is no other hope. But for us who are believers and here on the earth, we are to worship the Lord, solidly remembering the death of Christ, which gave us salvation and declared us righteous. And we are to proclaim that provision to the world and invite people to come and join us. But we must demonstrate our faith and our hope by living righteously in this world. That's what we learn from Noah patron saint of so many people today uh, representing God's righteousness on the earth and the hope of glory Father we pray that you would speak to our hearts we are grateful for the love that you have shown us in Christ who gave his life in our place so that we could have forgiveness of sins and not face the judgment but the world is facing judgment And we are here to warn them that the judge of the world is righteous and he will not tolerate evil and sin. We can find salvation when we hear God's word and and obey it. But to resist the Lord, to live in this evil world comfortably is the way that leads to destruction. Help us to be faithful witnesses, obedient servants, and devout worshipers, we pray in Christ's name.